You're listening to the No Gray Areas podcast with Patrick McCullough. Today's guest is Dr. Angela Hu Howard, Oxford grad and international law fellow at Beckett Law Firm. She breaks down the importance of having diversity and religious freedom. Let's dive in. So Angela, you might be the smartest person that I've had on this <laughs> podcast because you, uh, you went to law school at Harvard. You got your PhD from Oxford, correct? Yep. Well, I might be the guest with the most number of letters behind her name, but without question, because I know your podcast and have listened to it, <laughs> not going to be the smartest person here. Certainly not the one with the most wisdom. Yeah. Well, you do have a lot of letters behind your name. So, <laughs> but that's, that, that just shows tenacity and um, grit and perseverance. You know, that's what it was about. Yeah. It was about not quitting because yeah. it was some, some of that, especially the last degree, the DPhil, the PhD, was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I wasn't very good at it. I mean, and I'm not, uh, this isn't false modesty speaking. I just had so many friends and colleagues who were so much more talented at doing legal philosophy than I was. Yeah. Um, but I, I think God wouldn't let me quit. Yeah. And now I tell people who are struggling through their PhD, the only thing I've got for you is just don't quit. Yeah. You just keep doing it, what you need to do in front of you every day, and that's it. So it, it actually was... It was tenacity a lot more than intelligence. Well, I'll tell you what, though. That's pretty good advice for all of our listeners and for me as well. <laughs> Just don't quit. For life. Just, yeah, for life. Yeah, Grit, don't quit. Tenacity. And so, yeah. well, congratulations on that. I think you just, right, you got, that was last year? Just about a year ago, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. What What was your, your dissertation on? Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm in the field of legal theory, and I wrote about religious exceptions as an example or just kind of a very specific area of study in a broader conversation about what makes a good rule. What makes a good rule? Yeah, that and what good your, governance looks yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Because I, I I emailed you and I was like, hey, we should talk about your dissertation. Yeah. And you said, uh, I don't know that people would be that interested in it. I would like to unpack that at some point. We won't do it today, but I would like to unpack that at some point. But just briefly, what, why, how do you write a whole dissertation on what makes a good rule? I'm sure a lot of the audience is like, I never even thought about that. We have all thought about it. We just don't mm. describe it that way, right? So every time you, um, as a employer, as a parent, um, as a friend with, bound with appropriate boundaries, yeah. act you're acting according to a rule. You're thinking yes. about, you know, you're, you're using a combination of principle and prudence to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Your values are coming into it. The practical aspects of your life are coming into it, what you can handle and what you can't, what's right and wrong. We make rules that govern our lives all day long. Yeah, and, yeah we do. Uh, yeah, and people who, and you especially, I think, see this in parenthood, because every day you're thinking through the kind of rules that your children are mm -hmm. going to follow. And it's, it's not and that you're usually have a... pushing back a little bit too, <laughs> they, aren't they? They are. <laughs> yes. They're testing the limits. And it's actually so good for our thinking uh -huh. to be tested. Because uh -huh. there, there are many times when my daughter will say, I want to do something else and ex because of X, Y, and Z. And she's nine and has become quite persuasive. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'd say about half the time I listen to her, I realize there's something I didn't think about, mm. you know, and, you know, we can modify that. We can yeah. change that. We can. Yeah. And then there are other times when that's not going to work for the family rhythm yeah. or that's not going to be good for you. That's not in your best, yeah. best interest. But 
Um, so I think we're exercising that skill all the time, but we don't necessarily think of it that way. And we don't necessarily think of our public square as being a set of rules that needs to be kind of properly enacted. Mm -hmm. um, and we get, we get it's especially with sort of culture war issues, we get caught up in stories that matter, but we kind of forget what the contours should be. Yeah you know, for living together um, yeah. in harmony, even though we have all of this disagreement. And what what you do in the home, in your personal life, what you do, you know, in your company that you're running, that's just what our lawmakers are doing at a much grander scale. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I, I mean, I found it interesting enough to stick with it for, yeah. I must have broken a record. Um, <laughs> At my at Oxford, yeah, at my yeah. university for how long it took me, um, but I found it interesting the whole time. I sort of joke that nobody else wants to hear about it because it, it, I, you know, it was quite boring at some level. And one of my supervisors used to say that the title of your dissertation, and don't, I probably don't barely remember it at this point, so don't yeah. ask me. Okay, <laughs> I, will, I, I will not ask that question. The title of your dissertation should be so boring that nobody would ever pick that book up in a bookstore. <laughs> really? Yeah, he was trying to focus us. Did you, you know? succeed at that? It's pretty boring. Probably because pretty, you pretty don't Pretty boring even title. Yeah. <laughs> Long and boring, yeah. yeah. But uh, Angela, I find that a fascinating <laughs> subject, though. I know you're saying it's you know maybe a little boring to most people, but it, it, what makes a uh, what makes a good rule, it's... It's something that we've been asking since we were kids. We just yeah. didn't realize it, like you're saying. Yes. And as adults or as lawmakers, as parents, um, as friends, people in marriages, yeah. those are all questions we should be asking, yeah. right? Like we have this boundary. Is this a good boundary? What makes it a good boundary? Should we move the boundary a little bit? Those are all, right. those are legitimate questions. Right. And we're doing that. We're doing that all day long. And we're, you know, we're doing that when we're driving and thinking about traffic rules and whether they make sense. And, you know, like 99% of them make sense. It's amazing to me. When I see systems that work, I get very excited yeah. because so much work and so many people went into designing this thing. And when it works, it's a thing of beauty. It kind of shows us that we can we can figure things out if we have kind of the proper foundation for that yeah. conversation. As kids, we all dreamed of having being in a society or a home or a culture where there new, were no rules. <laughs> but if you think about it very long at all philosophically, that's that is a uh, maybe a picture of hell. <laughs> it is not a pretty picture to think of a culture, society, or anything without rules, right? I mean, it has it's. It's a circle of hell to be governed by your passions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you are and, and not, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go. Governed, like ruled, actually, yes. by your passions. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're both people of faith, and so we know that um, we have a God who, again, we want to kick against some of those rules or yeah. those guidelines that he's put in, in, in our lives, but they're there for a reason, especially mm -hmm. when we realize he's good. Right. He's a good God. So. Yeah. Yeah, and parenting is the same thing. I remember being a kid and hating some of the rules that my <laughs> parents had. And guess what rules I had for my kids? Most of the <laughs> same, same ones. ones. Because you find out there's a reason for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're currently working for who? I work for Beckett. Okay. And it's a little law firm based out of Washington, D.C. <laughs> we defend people of all faiths. We only do religious freedom work. We um, do what? we call impact litigation. So we're looking at mainly at kind of lawmaking cases, cases that are law changing cases, rather cases that are going to have 
a pretty broad impact set precedent, mm -hmm. good precedent, hopefully. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work is in uh, appellate courts, in courts of appeal, and um, at the Supreme Court. Now, you said a couple of things in there that I think are, are really good. We got to unpack a little bit. You <clears> said you defend people of all faiths. Yeah. Right? Yep. Why is that important? One, uh, it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, our founder, Seamus Hassan, is a deeply believing Catholic, and he mm -hmm. based the Beckett Fund on a Vatican II document called of Dignitatis Humanae, and it was a statement on religious freedom from the Catholic Church, and it laid out why religious freedom was important from a Catholic perspective, and it argued from reason why religious freedom uh, should be should apply to people of all faiths, even if they did not agree with Catholic doctrine, which the Catholic Church would defend as being actually theologically correct. So the argument isn't that there isn't a truth or there isn't a right answer or that the inquiry for that isn't important and the pursuit of the truth isn't important, but rather that everybody should have, everybody does have a God-given right to pursue it um, in the manner that their conscience directs. Uh, so those are the roots. Um, and I agree with Dignitatis Humanae's argument, um, but there are many practical reasons too. I mean, I think that it's essential to making our country, our republic, our world, a place where people can pursue the God-given desire mm -hmm. to follow their conscience, to ask questions about what is true and what is not, about who we are. So Seamus is sort of fond of saying, well, we, we don't all agree about who God is, but we do all agree about who we are. We are people mm -hmm. who have inherent dignity. We are people who care about the truth. We're people who want to be guided by our conscience. And even when we don't want to be guided by our conscience because it's inconveniently telling us to do or not do things that we don't or do want to do, um, there is that voice that yeah. kind of tells you whether to go right or to go left, right? Yeah. Um, and you know there are other practical reasons too. I think it keeps us honest as lawyers. So we're not only defending, you know, Christians or Hindus or Muslims or Jews or Sikhs. I'm now like you know going down the yeah. alphabet yeah. of people. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of we sort of say our clients have faith from A to Z. Like there's Amish through mm -hmm. the Zoroastrians, um, and we defend people. Is that Z one a real between. one? Yes, Zoroastrian. Really? I didn't know that. You <laughs> yeah. just taught me. So there really I've is learned, a to Z I've religion. learned so much about different religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I in this job, well, uh, Angela, but it keeps us honest because we can't. We, we can't. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you. no, no. You're. It keeps I'm us interviewing on. you, so you get to go whatever, whatever you want. Well, I, I mean, because we can't. We can't only defend one client, right? When we when we advocate mm -hmm. for a rule change, when we argue a case, we have to think: Is this going to be good for everybody? Yeah. Yeah, so I kind of like that. That's yeah, that's what we have to do. Well, and I'm I'm glad that you went on because what you said there at the end is so important, right? Because someone might be listening who who maybe isn't of any religious background. You know, they would so they may go, well, it doesn't really do matter to me. Right? Why does it matter? Yeah, but you would. I'm assuming argue that it doesn't. It should matter to everybody that yeah. you're fighting for religious freedom. Why should it matter to everybody? Oh, um, it's a whole nother dissertation. You can, <laughs> <laughs> I think people have written books about yeah, this. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that it goes back to this idea that we know who we are, right? Mm -hmm. And that we know 
who others are. And a lot of, I think a lot of our private and public lives are sorting through that and finding the best way to respond to that knowledge. Uh, and I think that that's true even if you don't believe in a, in a transcendental being, mm -hmm. if you don't believe in God, um, and you want to have the freedom to pursue that, that call. So I, I don't really, I can't, I, I, I think it's a really inherent part of being human to do that. Yeah. Um, and we have, we actually do have atheists and agnostics who support our work and are strong supporters. They don't have very strong faith or even sometimes any on their own, but they see the value of what we're doing because we're fighting for diversity in the public square. Yes. For And our founder actually wrote a book with this title, For the Right to be Wrong, hmm. right, within certain boundaries. So, you know, it's wrong to murder people. There's really no... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there are certain li bright lines that we draw. This isn't a sort of there's no boundaries, uh. but we certainly want the right to be wrong in our public discourse, in our debate, um, so that we can be persuaded, so that we can persuade others. And religious freedom is a really integral part of it. It pulls in a lot of other freedoms that um, people don't always think about when they think about religious freedom. You know, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, to act as a church. You know, we're yeah. sitting in a in a studio house yeah. within a church right yeah. now, um, and to collectively act, freedom of the press, to print Bibles. I mean, these are all they're all tied together. They're they're ways, actually yeah. all intimately tied together. Yeah. And, and isn't it true when we look back through history, uh, it never really goes well when we start taking away the freedom of religion, right? Like we see right. it time and again. That doesn't end well. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't. And we continue to make, make mistakes today. So I started at Beckett actually um, doing almost all international work, so almost all international cases in, in other countries and other jurisdictions um, my work is a little bit more kind of academic now, so I'm doing more sort of tying philosophy and practice, um, our cases in theory, be because I happen to have done this, you know, philosophy, mm -hmm. legal philosophy degree, um, and focused mostly on domestic work, although I do, do still do some international. But when I was doing more work abroad and lecturing and doing a certain amount of training mm -hmm. in other countries, particularly in countries that had jurisdictions that were just starting to uh, either had been more had been more recently formed. So we've yeah. been fighting about religion and religious freedom for, I mean, 250 yeah. years. I mean, you know, yeah. in this country. a long time. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, not as long as England has been doing it, but uh -huh. a long time <laughs> versus constitutional democracies around the world that were formed primarily after World War II and modeled their societies on a kind of post-World War II Universal Declaration of Human Rights that came out of the UN and, you know, kind of adopted our legal system of balancing rights, for example, and declaring that these are rights. And But then you have to negotiate them. You have to say, when do they apply? When do they not? What are the boundaries, right? And a lot of times there was this, sometimes this feeling of, you know, are you an American just lecturing me about the right way to do this? And I can easily say we're sharing our, our struggles with you. 
because we've been arguing about this for a really long yeah. time. Yes. And what I can offer is not to tell you exactly what to do or that we're better, yeah. but just, I mean, I have to speak from American perspective because I'm American. I don't know, right. like there's not another nationality from which I can, um, but I can tell you the mistakes that we made and we've made a lot of them. Yes. We've made a lot of them. And the founding of our country began with those mistakes. And I think our founders were reacting to it, right? Yes. I mean, they came here looking for a lot of things and one of the key things was religious freedom. And then many of them repeated the mistakes that they were trying to escape from. I mean, most Americans don't know that Quakerism used to be outlawed from, from uh, colony to colony. I mean, they, they literally would drag Quakers to the borders of colonies because they dared to preach and because they would not stop, stop preaching. Yeah. And I mean, we did things like we bore holes in their tongues. We cut off their ears. We, we tarred and feathered them. And they wouldn't stop, which just kind of tells you how compelling the conscience is yeah. and how yeah. people will fight for what they believe the right thing is. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting that you, you, you're bringing this history up because you, you, you mentioned two things that are important to get, I think. You, first of all, that we did our country, uh, the U.S., was founded with this idea of religious freedom. Well, we haven't always done it well. Even even some of those very ones that were founding it on that principle didn't always do it well. Yeah. Which surprise, that's kind <laughs> of being a human, right? Like yeah. again, you and I being people of faith, we don't always live out what we what we claim to believe uh deep within our souls and our yeah. hearts, right? But you mentioned something else too. Post-World War II, you mm -hmm. said that this whole thing came out and but that was in a reaction to what we saw as a world, right? Like the whole right. world, the UN. Yeah. Um, most of the world got together, but it was a reaction to what we saw happen when you took away those religious freedoms, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you know the Holocaust, rampant anti-Semitism throughout Europe. It wasn't it wasn't only in Germany, um, and I think we saw the devastating effects mm -hmm. of that. And mm -hmm. it was it was a reaction. I mean the the UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, really lists rights that. And when did that I think come? we always was that, had. Was that in that? Yeah, post-World War II. Okay. Uh -huh. I, it was a reaction to World War II, but it's sort of important to recognize that a lot of the rights that are, all of the rights that are listed in there are kind of recognize something that was, was already there. In it, but it was an effort to kind of unite countries around this idea and say, this is something, this is what we're going to pursue. Now, I have kind of major, I have a lot of respect for colleagues and friends who work at the UN who really care and do great work and have a lot of integrity. I think the institution itself, like most institutions, is deeply corrupted in many ways. <laughs> it's just because they're run by human beings. Yes, yeah. um, so I don't mean this to just sort of endorse everything that the UN does, which yeah. I absolutely do not. Yeah. Um, but to say that as a concept, it was capturing something that I think is mm -hmm. valuable, mm -hmm. was valuable then, was is valuable today, but more is recognizing something that was always there. And you see a lot of the marks of that in our constitution, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about yeah, I mean, even the way the language of the Constitution really recalls us to yeah. how we're born with inalienable in rights, you know, also in, of course, the Declaration of Independence. And, yeah. yeah, but it was already there, is what I mean. Like, we're not making this up. Y yeah, this isn't something We're recognizing new. who we are yes. in, in Seamus's language. You know what's so interesting is if someone had been listening to these podcasts that we've been doing for about a year now, that they, they will see this theme that keeps being dropped in by multiple guests, and you've brought it up a couple of times, inherent dignity. Yeah. And that is something that's brought up often, but it's such huh. a core, I mean, again, be, being people of faith, the narrative starts 
with showing why we should have inherent dignity, right? We're image right. bearers of yes. the creator. And so even when you and I don't agree, um, right. the, you still have dignity. Even mm -hmm. when you have a different religion, you have you still have dignity. Even when fill in the blank. Even when I do bad things. Mm. And this is, so we actually, um, <laughs> it's less controversial today. It was probably con more controversial when we started. Um, but we've had a number of prisoner cases, quite a few. And in, in fact, our, one of our most recent ones, is it our most recent prisoner case? I'm not sure. At the Supreme Court is Holt v. Cobbs. And on behalf of a Muslim convict, a Muslim prisoner, who was in for a very serious violent crime, um, and we defended his right as a Muslim to grow a quarter-inch beard, um, which he felt was, and mm -hmm. most Muslims feel, is a dictate or, or, a, or um, is a requirement of the faith in, for, for Muslim men. Mm -hmm. um, and that decision, we won unanimously. It was a 9-0 vote. And it would, you know, it was a really, I think, a pretty so, seminal case. But we, we you say you that? don't lose your rights once you yeah. get into you lose some of your rights. Yes. Right? You can't travel. Yes. <laughs> you just go wherever you want. Yeah. And and in fact, in the religious freedom realm, you also lose some of your ability to practice your religion. He can't just go to any mosque that he wants in the country freely, mm -hmm. the way he could before he was convicted of a crime and thrown into jail. Um, but there but what we do is we we minimize as much as possible government restrictions so that people can pursue their conscience. And there's actually a legal standard, a legal rule that the courts use in America to kind of capture that idea. So um, the, the rule that is most prevalent in religious freedom cases says that the government can only restrict uh, a substantial, a, a, a religious exercise that you want to pursue that causes you a substantial burden, that puts a substantial burden on your religious exercise or, you know, a religious act mm -hmm. um, if it satisfies two criteria. And one is that it has a, a compelling government interest. It can't just be any government interest. It has to be really compelling. Yeah. Um, and two that it's the least restrictive means to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if there's another way for us to do this without restricting your religious freedom, but still accomplishing our public interest here, yeah. then you have to do it that way. Um, and it actually, some of that really gets at what makes a good rule. Like rules shouldn't be overbroad. You don't want to encompass too much. You know, you uh, rules should be, should should specifically follow a particular good, a compelling government interest. Um, and when a substantial burden on one of somebody's fundamental constitutional rights is at stake, those two things should really be acting in concert. So, well, you and know. The, and why would you, so I think probably a lot of the listeners might be going like, it doesn't matter that much that you can grow <laughs> a quarter inch beard. Yeah. But, but I hear you saying it does. And it yeah. actually matters to us when you filter it down. Why is that? Like, why do you think yeah. it was important that your law firm uh, defended that? There's a much broader principle at stake than the quarter-inch beard of this one man. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, sort of famous constitutional law cases yeah. get at this, right? It's a story of one person. Um, and But the personal becomes political 
very, very quickly because it represents some, a principle that we should all really care about. So it's not just about his right to grow a beard and live according to his conscience that way. We have cases having to do with access to kosher and halal food for Jewish and mm -hmm. um, Muslim prisoners. One of our clients has been prison fellowship, Chuck Colson's mm -hmm. ministry. Um, so it's about access to, it's not just, you know, the prisoner's access to um, religious texts like the Bible, the prisoner's access to being able to attend religious services, the prisoner's access to, um, now I'm like naming, I'm naming things that a Christian audience would relate to a little bit more, access to uh, being able to attend mass and take communion, um, and also prison fellowship's ability to go into prisons and to do their work of rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And th and they have an incredibly high rate of success, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, do. they run really stringent programs. The prisoners volunteer, they're never forced um, to, to go, go through, but they're also waiting on the outside when they come out. And their rate of recidivism is so much lower than, president, mm -hmm. pre than prisoners who were not thinking in a conscience-driven way while they were serving their time and who don't have communities waiting to support them when they come out. Um, so, I mean, this is something that, that we should all care about. that goes back to religious freedom. The, the, yeah. and, and yes. The, the dignity of, right. yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting, again, because it goes back to that core about the inherent dignity. I mean, when you start... When you, when you start not worrying about certain populations, whether it be prisoner or yeah. um, color of the skin or gender or whatever, it, 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 uh, a society starts to unravel, hmm. doesn't it? I mean, that's what we've seen in history. It may not be overnight, but... You know, you're right. So I used to sort of say, give me any country and show me any jurisdiction and show me how they treat their least favored religious minority and I'll tell you how how good they're doing, or how well they're doing, and how good wow. they're. And I'll tell you how 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 good their justice system is, right? It's how we treat the least of these, and wow. and I, I I would modify that today to to a lot of other people who are very vulnerable. I mean, you you can say that about the poorest people in our society. Mm -hmm. You can say that about the people who have the greatest disabilities in our society. You can say that about you know, people who like, have, have suffered the most racial injustice. What does it look like for them today? And it's gonna tell you a lot about how we're doing. If you're, if you're well off, if you have a lot of privilege in your life, if you either came from or was or adopted into or formed, you know, a very stable family eventually, people have been through a lot and eventually, you know, your own story formed an incredibly strong, flourishing family and, if you're in that situation, all and 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 your litmus test or your you know barometer for how the country is doing is yourself hmm. and your friends who all look and act like you, it's not accurate. That is so. <laughs> it's not accurate. So good for us to get. Yeah. That is so good for us to get because I think that's what we naturally do as humans is we, we look and we go, well, I made it, or I'm doing okay, or it's okay, and but that's not the test we need to... And I had it really hard, and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Yes. And, you know, I'm sort of sympathetic to that because my, my parents came here. They immigrated from Taiwan without really anything. You know, my dad just... 
they they just worked really really yeah. hard so you um, grew up in a family that lived that out oh yeah i mean i feel like my life has been sort of the american dream illustrated i mean mm -hmm. they, they really came here with hardly anything but they also did have help that we have to recognize other people don't you know mm -hmm. my father got a full scholarship to get his mba from a school in the middle of nowhere in missouri and that was what he could get and it was his kind of ticket out of a society where he didn't feel or you know a, a country where the socioeconomic circumstances weren't what he felt he could yeah. where he could flourish um i mean taiwan looks very different now it's one of these Asian tigers. It is yeah. flourishing in many ways. Um, but back then, it was very, very different. It was very, very poor. There was political instability. Um, and he came here with nothing. And they worked so hard. But they they had certain things, right? I mean, he had, he had a stable marriage. My mother supported him. Mm -hmm. He had family that cared about him. He had a scholarship to go to school. He had an incredible work ethic that he picked up somewhere along the way. Um, and he used it. He used it. So we, you know, Catholics talk a lot about, about cooperating with the grace that God gave you. Mm. You know, just take God's grace and go, well, that should be enough. I'm just going to hang out here. Mm -hmm. You cooperate with you it. Cooperate and that's where faith it. and work really get married, yes, right? Yes. Um, and I feel like my parents did cooperate yeah. with the many gifts that they were given. Yeah. But they, so they worked really hard. And I see that. I see that because yeah. I grew up watching them work so hard and sacrifice so much for our family. And for the most part, depend on themselves. But they were, they also had amazing employers who wanted to sponsor them as immigrants yeah. in this country. Yeah. You know, they had the scholarship and they, they, they also had other things. They had, they had, they had debt and they, you know, I, the first place that they ever lived was this basement apart, apartment in Harlem before it was gentrified. Um, and it didn't have a full bath, you know, I mean, so they struggled and I see the value of that kind of grit. Yeah. I lament that. I feel like that's some the value of grit is is being lost, right? And I try to instill that in our admittedly, I think, very privileged children who haven't known a hungry day in their lives. Yeah, but yeah. but I also realize that we are not atomized beings. Like yeah. I mean, everybody everybody who has made it can remember for the most part that even if everything else was Going to Helen Handbasket, I love yep. to say that. Yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> um, there was that one mentor. Yeah. There was that one teacher who believed in them someone. and wouldn't give up. You know, yeah. there was like, yeah. yeah, there was the one advocate who, when yeah. they were popping back and forth to different foster homes that might have been abusive, was just the one constant in their lives that made them feel like they could get out of it. And I feel like our society, am I going too long? No. I feel like our society is losing the grip of how mm -hmm. these things work together and how we're actually all responsible for it. So, you know, the story of Mr. Holt wasn't just about him. Yeah. You know, it really entailed all of the things that went into how he decided to convert to Islam. He was a convert, you know, went into what made him start to think in moral terms and as Christians, we don't believe what Muslims do. In yes. fact, I think my Muslim friends and I are very comfortable saying, 
I think you're wrong about that yep. <laughs> extremely important thing that you believe. And that's a conversation worth having. But to preserve his ability to yeah. pursue that is incredibly important. And he doesn't he doesn't even do it alone. Yeah. He doesn't do it alone. He does it in consort with organizations yeah. like Prison Fellowship who are out there, you know, thinking about him and the rest of society, about what happens to everybody else when prisoners come out. Yeah. They're thinking about the recidivism rate. They're not thinking about just one thing. Um, and I, I might just end this little rant yeah, yeah. <laughs> with somebody comes to mind. Uh, Michael um, Michael McConnell is a is a law professor at Stanford. He's a constitutional law scholar, and he talks about how liberalism is not just the government on one side and a bunch of atomized individuals on the other. There are a whole host of mediating institutions in between. You know, there are churches and there are hospitals yes. and there are civic centers and there are schools and there, I mean, there are all of these mediating institutions and religious freedom just doesn't just cover the one individual mm -hmm. and what you, you know, or I want to do. It, it also is protecting. Which is why it's so important, isn't it? The institutions yeah. so yes. that they present, they yes. not only yes. can help to enact the, the common good, yeah. right? Yeah. But they act as mediators. Yeah. That is they also present alternatives to state power. Yeah. It's incredibly dangerous if all we care about is state power yeah. and power resides entirely there and the government tells you what your rights are and what the limits are and there's no mediating conversation there or if individuals are so alone and powerless that they can't in community, sometimes through these institutions, but sometimes just through some random you know, protest that springs up, start to say there are alternatives to this like the yeah. state isn't the arbiter of what god-given rights we have it's it's a whole conversation which is what you guys are involved in and why it should matter you know i, I thought of this analogy when you were just talking there uh, and i don't know if this works really well but the problem is sometimes um when we think you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps you know and because you know your family made it well everyone should make it but it's almost like taking 10 little kids that don't know how to swim and throwing them deep in the deep end of the pool <laughs> and the problem is is we build our our philosophy sometimes off of that one out of the 10 kids mm. that just figured it out and got to the side and then we go we'll see right they did it so and we ignore the fact that nine others drowned yeah but but i think i added a little bit i've used that analogy before but you just helped me add something to it Religious freedom helps those organizations that will jump in and help. So sometimes one of those kids that may be a Jewish organization that helped, and maybe it was mm -hmm. a Muslim organization. I mean, there's all there's mm -hmm. a lot more to it, but our society is better because you throw nine kids in that they don't know how to swim. Right. One will get there on their own. Yeah. Nine would drown if they didn't have some help. Yeah. And there's a lot of organizations from different religious backgrounds that will help those other nine. Yeah. And I, I think today Americans don't come. Com I think you know don't understand just how much religious organizations are doing and religious ministries. I think you're right. And for free. I think you're um, right. Yeah. It's it's a lot. It's if a lot of it's hospitals and education. Yes. Yeah. In, in almost every sector. So a client comes to mind, um, the Little Sisters of the Poor. They are a they are an order of 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 Catholic sisters. Um, more popularly known as nuns, but it's actually a misnomer because nuns are cloistered and okay. the sisters are out there in the world doing work. An order of... You just taught me something. <laughs> <It's good. laughs> 
an order of, of religious sisters who whose entire charism is dedicated to caring for the elderly poor. Mm. So all they do is 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 have homes and um, and uh, medical facilities and health you know healthcare for people who are elderly mm. and poor. Yeah. And, and what they offer many times. Um, is a dignified end of life. Some of their residents are there for decades, and others are 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 you know really really at the end. So they're offering also a dignified death, and they were involved. Respect inherent dignity. Yes, yeah. Yeah. they were involved sadly in multiple Supreme Court cases um, because under the Affordable Care Act, one of the category of drugs that was mandated to be provided by insurers was all forms of FDA-approved birth control, and there is something like 20 or 21 of them. Um, now, there was a previous case to this that probably a lot of listeners may, may have heard of involving Hobby Lobby, and that was really about whether you know the corporation, which was privately held, it's owned by a, a family, um, could object to four of those contraceptives because they felt that they were abortifacient. So they were happy to provide all of the other ones, you know, 16 of them or something like that, but they didn't want their own insurance plan to cover four because they felt that they were abortifacient. They, mm -hmm. you know, in, in one case, the mechanism of the birth control was essentially to remove or make the uterus inhospitable to the fertilized egg so it could no longer grow. Um, and that that case was more about sort of you know private action, yeah. how far religious freedom could extend to a privately held corporation, and I, in my mind and in Beckett's mind, that goes to collective action to whether or not um, you know a group of people should be able to ex to use their religious freedom yeah, rather than just right you know to, individuals yeah. acting alone. Um, and if you think about that, it makes sense relatively easy, easily once you think about the fact that you can ask, does the New York Times have press freedom, freedom mm -hmm. of the press? Mm -hmm. If they don't, they probably can do what they're doing. Yeah. And that's a corporation too, right? Yes. So there was that, but the Little Sisters actually objected to all of the contraceptives. And, you know, to be fair, number one, they're celibate sisters. They don't really need it. Yeah. But beyond that, yeah. they do have people working for them who are not religious visitors, uh, sisters and haven't taken vows of celibacy. Um, and so uh, this was under the Obama administration at the time, sort of said, no, you have to provide this. And not only that, we want you to sign on the dotted line to allow us to interact with your insurance company so that you know we can make sure that there is this provision. And then that way, you're not standing there handing out birth control. Fine, we agree you don't have to do that, but we want to use your insurance plan and we want you to sign this piece of paper. And the administration actually tried to argue that it was a meaningless piece of paper and shouldn't is really not a substantial burden at all on their conscience rights. Mm. And I mean, when I think about this argument, I just think that's a little bit bonkers because yeah. if it's so meaningless, why do you need them to why? sign? <laughs> exactly. And so, so there exactly. was a sort of real philosophical question there that was super interesting, which is at what point is the government going to accept that this is a degree of complicity with evil that we're going to respect? And in both of those cases, that test that I talked about mm -hmm. earlier, the least restrictive means came into play. So both we won both of those cases at the Supreme Court um, Hobby Lobby was a more divided court. Um, Little Sisters was unanimous. 
Um, but the government said, if you want to provide people, women, with free contraceptives, there's a less restrictive means to do this. Instead of going through Hobby Lobby's insurance plan, or instead of forcing the little sisters to be complicit in this, you can just give it away. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I mean, so I think that, you know, that, I think that case actually really illustrates how the, the little sisters' whole life view is, is one thing. You cannot actually divorce their beliefs at one end of life from the other end. Mm. So they believe in the dignity of human persons from womb to tomb, from the beginning of life all the way until the end. And the religious, the Christian faith and the, 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 um, the, the beliefs that they carry that enable them to dignify people who have no resources, nowhere else to go, you know, are indigent to dignify them. And I've, I've been in their homes. They're, they're not really that bare bones. They're beautiful places to mm. live, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they provide excellent, excellent medical care um, at the end of life. But what enables them to dignify somebody at the very end of life um, is intimately tied to what brings them to have 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 their beliefs about about the beginning mm -hmm. and their beliefs about the dignity of human beings from the very beginning of their life is absolutely what's informing their belief that human beings have complete dignity at the end regardless of their capacities a lot of people at their end of life are incapacitated mm -hmm. they they lose one or more you know mental or physical functions um, and regardless of whether or not they have resources. Uh, so I, I don't think well, that you can, you can divorce people's beliefs and say, well, why can't you bring this into the public square, but not that? Yes, and I, and I hear you saying, Angela, that that's one of the things that, that Beckett is doing and why religious freedom is so important because you, you go down a dangerous road when you're asking someone to take, to, to divorce this little piece here with everything else they believe. And, um, and again, I think we, history shows that, that um, society unravels pretty fast. Tell, say again, <laughs> as, we, as we wrap up here, say again what you said earlier when you said, because um, that was like, to me, that was so deep where you said something about, you show me how a society treats the least. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, show, show me any society, any jurisdiction, any country, and how they are treating the least among them, right? So the least favored religious minority the, the most disabled person, the person who has suffered sort of the most social pressures um, because of who they were born as. And I'll tell you how much justice they really have. So here's the convicting part for me. <laughs> I heard you say that and I thought for us as listeners, for me, for you, it applies to us as individuals, doesn't it, mm -hmm. as well. You show me how I treat or we treat the least of these and I'll probably, sh it probably will display where my life really wow. is. No. Um, which is, again, pe being people of faith, no wonder from cover to cover in the Bible, God, mm. God's heart is for the least of these. And he tells us to care for the widows and the orphans yes. and the least of these. Because it does display where we are as individuals, as a family, as a culture, as a society. So this is, I mean, you're, you're, you're bringing up something that's kind of become a passion of mine. And I'm still working through what that looks like in my personal life, in our life as a family. 
Um, and that is that we, it's, it's not just that we sit and we judge what's going on, right? And, and that we, or, or that we sit and we just try not to do harm. I actually think that we are called to do good, mm -hmm. <laughs> that we are called to be exceptional, to be as a church, to be that city on the hill. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I see every day, I see ministers, you know, I see um, missionaries, I see lay people, I see religious orders doing extraordinary things that really, really encourage me. And I also see us failing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in one, I'll, if you'll permit me to bring up um, the abortion context, I have very firm pro-life convictions, mm -hmm. uh, but something that I'm much more interested in than arguing about that, um, <laughs> or even about when life begins, which I think is a really, really important important discussion to have, is actually, you know, what are we doing about helping mothers keep their babies? The vast, vast majority of abortion cases, I mean, we're talking 90 plus percent are for socioeconomic reasons. And shame on us. Shame on us that that's why. Mm. Because the vast majority of these women would say, if I didn't have these certain social pressures, if my family was intact, if I had the economic resources, if I had any support in my life as a mother at all with the four kids that are already overwhelming me, or even just with the first child, but I'm 16 years old, you know, um, I would want to keep my child. Mm. And what are we doing to help them? So in every city we've lived in, we actually have found crisis pregnancy centers that provide, you know, housing, healthcare, continued education. I mean, all of the things that I think yeah. are so not visible, especially in the mainstream media. And so the other side, really do care about we do. There's a lot of that. Every place we've lived in, we found places like that in our very modest way, found a way to help. But I sort of sometimes look at these places. I know that they're underfunded. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that Planned Parenthood, which doesn't offer any of these things, gets many, many, many times more tax dollars for any of their programming. I know that um, there, there are waiting lists for many of these places. And the question is, why does it have to be like that? And I'm, I, I am talking to Christians to say, why are we not stepping up to do a lot more to take away the demand? But I sometimes say this also to friends of mine who are a great deal more morally liberal than I am um, and who are pro-choice to say, why are you not doing more? Like, why are we not agreeing on this? Like, let's, yes. sure, let's keep arguing about the legality of abortion, right? Like, yeah. we can have that civilized yeah. argument. But what we should all agree on. Why are we not agreeing on paid family leave? Why are we not agreeing on the fact that there are people who just need help for some period and that we all receive that in some way? And I'm not just talking about government programs because I've been... I've, been, I've lived in D.C. long enough to work with the U.N. long enough, saw inside the belly of the beast with government long enough to realize that there's incredible inefficiencies. And frankly, some of those programs do work really well. I believe in them. I believe in the people who are running them. And some of them really don't. It's full of waste. And the best programs that I've seen have been mostly privately run, oftentimes in partnership with public agencies. Yep. But sometimes they're just on their own. And it's because those programs are able to individualize. And a lot of times those programs are faith-based because they're asking not just, what widget can I give you? 
You know, what meal and how many can I deliver to you? But who are you as a human being? How can I dignify you as a human being? How can I accompany you in this like journey with multivalent problems? And I started thinking about this honestly when I arrived at Beckett a lot more mm-hmm. because Seamus, our founder, created a workplace that was incredibly family friendly. I mean, so he has seven children of his own. And I think he wanted to create a place where lawyers would stay as their families grew because instead could, of just get burned out and, and be leave. A lawyer. Yeah. Right. So, you know, a living wage is very popular in the left and not so popular in the in among conservatives. But let's own that phrase and say, you know, if it's fair pay for for actual labor, right? Um, and to say we're gonna have really great family leave for fathers and mothers because you are not babysitting your children. You are fathering them when yeah. you're with them. Yeah. Um, and and he also created the circumstances. And this is long before you know COVID-19 and remote work became popular, but he made it possible for women and men um, to be working remotely for you know part of their time, all of their time, if what they needed was to be home with their families. And it's enabled, I think, a disproportionate number of women to become senior lawyers in our firm and, you know, to stay with their jobs, even through multiple children. Mm. And that was such a, and this is, you know, this is long before I think the conversation became popular, yeah. right? Um, and they, it, was a, it told me whatever is out there and the people aren't getting, it is actually possible for us to do this. And they're, they're, it's not easy to negotiate, yeah. Yeah. but I'm saying why is not every Christian employer in the land setting the example for what that looks like? Because when, you're, when your lawyer or your secretary or your administrative assistant walks into the room in, in, to their job, they're coming as a whole human being. Yeah. It, it's not like they came in wearing just the one hat, right? Mm-hmm. So there are expectations about performance, but they come with them and your job as an employer is to enable their flourishing in life. Now, they might not be there forever and some people are not cut out for certain jobs, right? Yes, the yeah, people yeah. get laid off, they get fired, they move on to other opportunities that are better fits for them, hopefully, is how we think of it when we have to let somebody go. But while they are in your employ, like why, why do we as Christians, and I think many Christians do, but we need to do this at scale. You know, I, I just want the rest of the world to look at Christian institutions. As and, a model. You know, yes, as a model, yeah. as a city on the hill. Like, oh, there's another way to do this. Women don't, single women don't have to do this alone. You know, families don't have to totally crush us. We can be a, we, there's a, there's a way to be life-giving. There's you know, a way to like yes. take care of the least among us. Angela, it's And so, still flourish, all of us, and yes. make money even. Yeah. It's interesting because this this started, what you were saying here in the last moments, started with me saying, going off of what you said about you show me a, a, a country where they tr- how they treat the least of these and I'll show you how their justice system is. And I said, man, we need to apply that to ourselves. And um, I don't know if the listeners caught it. I bet they did. You came alive. <laughs> you oh, came gosh. alive. But I, I love that. Well, we need to wind down here. But thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for the impact that you're having. I thank you just for what we learned today. I'm walking away. This is my my truth that I'm taking as I walk away is it really matters how I treat the least of these. Hmm. It really matters what I do with what I say I believe. You know, if I say I'm pro-life, then I should be from, pro-life from, from 
mm. from the beginning to the end. How did you put it before? From yeah, from womb to tomb. Womb to tomb. Yeah. And and care about all of that. I'm caring about people, you know, how people are laid in their dignity. And so the, I, I'm walking away with that truth, and I appreciate that. One of the things that we do on here that's kind of fun, though, to finish is we do the two truths and a lie. So do you have two truths and a lie? I, I It's ironic. I, is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's ironic. She's for people that are um, listening and not watching. She's jotting some notes down. I'm not going to look at them because I okay. have to try to guess this. Two um, truths and a lie. So Pete, when you had my husband on here, he he's lived a more exciting life. <laughs> I think he yeah. gave you some kind of uh, hard he, he hard, hard a, to guess, yeah, right? He's a logger. Yeah. He was inside a, a Russian camp, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Okay. Well, let me preface that by saying thank you, um, and also thank you for letting me be passionate. Mm-hmm. I hope it wasn't too much. <laughs> it wasn't too much. <laughs> and you know, I'm grateful for our friendship because I feel mm-hmm. like those relationships. Um, are going to keep us accountable because it's not easy to do these things. I mean, we've had this very high-minded conversation and I can tell you every day there's something that I kind of fall down on. Me too. Um, Yeah. Me too. Okay, so two truths and a lie. I once um, was hiking for, you know, a month by myself in New Zealand and got lost in a mountain. Okay. (laughs) Um, I was in a horrible car accident in Bangladesh and the only thing that saved me from going over a cliff was a was the fact that we hit a tree and about a million villagers coming out in the middle of the night to help us um I paid had an amazing trip to Kenya visiting some friends from law school and climbed Kilimanjaro with them Ooh, those are good. <laughs> those are good. Middle one is true. The car wreck. Yeah. Okay. Why so fast? Too well, many details? because you, you just <laughs> shared some details that I was like, that's got to be true. Oh, okay. Um, I have to remember this for the next time we play this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm trying not to encourage you to be a better liar. I'm just saying. <laughs> so that one's true. And then um, um, I'm going to say the Kilimanjaro one you did not do. <sighs> You are cheating because you know that my husband is the outdoorsman. Yes, that's kind of true. Because right before we turned on the mics, we were talking and yeah. you were saying like, yeah, I love to hike and everything, but other people have to kind of get initiate. Into it. So that's where I figured yeah. it was. Now, I was hiking in New Zealand. Yeah, but you did. That, that one's true then. So, I got yeah, lost. You're a world traveler. And yeah. So I have been to the foothills of Kilimanjaro and was there with friends. No, and it's kind of a lifelong dream to climb Kilimanjaro. Uh, Pete Pete will drag. So there's a little wish fulfillment in here too. If your husband Pete drags you, get him excited. He's never taken me up on it. And there'll be some adventures. (laughs) Anytime I'm with Pete, there's some adventures. Well, he's traveled so much. I think he's tired of it. Yeah, I think so. Well, Angela, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you you for coming on as a guest. Yeah, it was such a gift. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the No Gray Areas podcast. To dive deeper into the story, be sure to subscribe, follow us on social media, and check out nograyareas.com.